Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to my Friday Five, a topical weekly look at the world of well-being. Now, I don't know about you, but much as I love springtime, there is something big about it I really do not like, and that is the tree pollen. Do you know, for years, I have been absolutely plagued by terrible hay fever, so much that I've had to use steroid nasal sprays, prescription eye drops, countless high-strength antihistamines. Well, all that changed for me last year when I interviewed various functional medicine doctors and nutritionists right here on my Lazar Wellbeing Show podcast, and I got to hear about something called quercetin. Now, this is a natural food supplement. It's actually a reddish coloured plant pigment found in foods such as red onions, red skinned apples, red wine and green tea to name but a few. And it's implicated in dampening down the histamine reaction. Now, I actually started to get interested in this after a discussion with the brilliant consultant doctor, Tina Pears, who uses quercetin as part of the mast cell activation syndrome protocol, or MCAS as it's known, something my eldest daughter, Lily, follows for her autoimmune and chronic pain issues. Well, I started taking quercetin, not expecting much from a basic food supplement, if I'm honest. After all, I've had around a decade of annual high-strength medication from my doctor for my hay fever. Anyway, lo and behold, I started taking quercetin daily, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited for my hay fever symptoms to start and blow me down if they didn't. Do you know, I went a full hay fever season with my medication still unopened in its boxes. I have it to this day. So as I look to return to the UK now from my travels and I'm expecting my immune system to react to the sudden assault of springtime pollens, I have again started taking it in anticipation and I shall keep you posted. Fingers crossed it wasn't just a one-off and it works as well for me this year too. Worth a try for anyone similarly affected, I would say. And I'll give you details of the one that I use later in this episode. But first, on the subject of hay fever and allergies in general, which actually affects a staggering one in three of us, I am delighted to introduce this week's guest, Dr. Sophie Farouk, one of the UK's leading allergy experts. She is an elected council member of the British Society 
Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and a practicing NHS consultant at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. She has just recently published a fascinating book called Understanding Allergy with Penguin and she is on a mission to empower both healthcare professionals and their patients with the confidence to manage allergy. So with pollen season upon us, we are going to be talking about hay fever, what it is, how to stop it spoiling our summer and what to do if traditional treatments fail us. I'm going to be asking her about quercetin and then we're going to dive into food allergies, food intolerances and most importantly, how to treat life-threatening anaphylaxis. It's an absolute must listen. So Sophie, a very warm welcome to the podcast and I'm particularly interested in this chat as a chronic hay fever sufferer. Can we start with a little bit of chat perhaps about your background and why you became just so interested in allergies? Well, you know, to be honest with you, allergy was something that I sort of fell into a little bit by accident. So I'd always wanted to be a doctor. And once I qualified, I knew I wanted to be a physician. In other words, a doctor who treats patients using medicines rather than being a surgeon or a, or a gynecologist or a, or a children's doctor. Um, and I was working, you know, very, very hard as, you know, junior doctors often do. And I was doing, you know, between 60 to kind of 110 um, hours a week. And I decided to, having got my professional exams, just to take a little bit of time out, really, to think about which way I wanted to go. Did I want to be a, a skin specialist or a respiratory specialist? And at that time, the first ever allergy training post in the UK was advertised. And it was, uh, I won't go into the first time, but it was the second time I experienced love at first sight. And <laughs> I saw it and I immediately knew that was what I wanted to do because it gave me the opportunity to work with so many specialties, whether it's, you know, respiratory doctors and asthma and allergy, um, hay fever and rhinitis with ear, nose and throat surgeons, drug allergy, food allergy. It gave me the options to do all of those sort of things. Um, and also, to be really honest with you, gave me potentially quite a nice lifestyle as well. So I wouldn't be working 100 hour plus weeks, you know, into my 50s, 60s and so on. Um, so, I, so I fell into it and um, it was the best thing that ever happened I'm a, I'm a happy doctor which may be a rare thing I absolutely love it well that is just great to hear on every level and it's very interesting I think at the moment talking about allergies because there's almost nobody I speak to who doesn't seem to have some sort of allergy or issue or intolerance with some substance or another but can we start perhaps with hay fever because pollen season is just around the corner I know for myself I, I particularly am susceptible to the early tree pollen which is around us at the moment um, what exactly is is hay fever why why does it cause such terrible symptoms for some so hay fever is a common way of describing pollen allergy um it's it's seasonal depending on which pollen you are allergic to so people who are allergic to tree pollen they tend to be affected sort of march april time people who are allergic to grass pollen they tend to be affected a bit later in the year so kind of may and june time so 
peak exam season. And then people who are allergic to weed and other pollens tend to be allergic in the latter part of the summer. And, you know, hay fever, it's just a, it's a total misnomer. I think in the book, I say it's the first example of fake news because, you know, hay fever, it's not triggered by hay. Um, they thought at that time that it was to do with the smell of hay. Um, you don't get a fever with it. So it's a, and, and it's a word that's actually used kind of across Europe. So the British coined hay fever um, and the rest of Europe picked it up. Um, so everyone seems to call it hay fever, apart from the Norwegians who call it a hay cold. Um, but it's nothing to do with a cold or infection or fever or hay. So what are the main symptoms then? So the main symptoms tend to be itchy eyes, throat, inner ears, watery eyes, itchy, runny nose, sneezing. And it's interesting that in children, it tends to be the eyes that dominate a lot more. So you'll see children with itchy, watery, puffed up eyes, while in adults, it tends to be the nasal symptoms, the itching, the sneezing, the running, the blowing, that tends to be more of an issue. I mean, you know, Obviously, people get both, um, but it tends to vary a little bit, which is the kind of organ that dominates um, depending on your age. Mm, interesting. You know, it, it sounds relatively mild, I guess, to some, if anybody has you know, not had the misfortune of experiencing it. I've had some years when I've been completely debilitated by it. You know, I cannot sleep. I cannot think. I cannot work. It's been really hard to see. Do you think that, you know, hay fever, for want of a better word or term, needs to be taken a bit more seriously, perhaps? Absolutely. You know, you've kind of touched on one of my kind of bugbears. And I think that it it, it comes down to kind of both personal experience and sort of, you know, some of the evidence. So when I was a child growing up, my mother had terrible hay fever in the summer. And actually, it didn't just dominate her life, it dominated our life as a family. You know, if we wanted to go anywhere, you know, we were really aware of her hay fever. You know, in those days, cars didn't have great air conditioning with filters. So we sit there sweltering in the summer with the car windows up while she had a completely miserable um, time. And as a family, we all just really dreaded the um, pollen season. And I see, and when I went into allergy, um, I realised that her years of suffering were completely unnecessary. And I could look back at all those, spo those spoiled summers and those didn't have to have happened at all. And I see that pattern time and again in my clinic. Of course, there's some people who are lucky who don't get hay fever at all. I mean, I'm one of them. Um, you get people who just manage with an antihistamine. But actually, in terms of quality of life I see the impact and you can look at you know some of the kind of statistics behind it so they say that in the world they estimate four million sick days are taken because of hay fever they estimate it costs the British economy 300 million a year in lost productivity um but you know us Brits we're really stoic you know we keep on plowing on and it's yeah, sometimes probably, it, sure. you know and it, and it sometimes counts against us um it can be dangerous you know we know that people who have allergic rhinitis that's allergic inflammation of the nose of which hay fever is a part, and seven percent of them will report having a car accident or a near miss directly because of uncontrolled symptoms. You can imagine you're driving and you're sneezing away, and when you sneeze, your eyes, you know, the reflex, they will close. You can see how that can happen. And the study which I often quote, which I think really illustrates the point, was um, a British study in 2007 by a lady called Sam Walker. 
And she looked at 1,800 UK teenagers who had hay fever. And she compared their GCSE exam grades between the mock and the summer. And those with hay fever were 40% more likely to drop a grade. And if they were taking the wrong sort of antihistamine, so a sedating antihistamine, they were 70% more likely to drop a grade. So you can see that the impact is really significant, not for everyone, but for some. And so it's one of my sort of hobby horses slightly. You know, you, you don't often, you don't have to suffer. Um, you know, or at least I would say the vast majority of people don't have to suffer. There are things that can be done. Well, that is very good news. So let's talk about that. What can we do to treat it then? So I tend to advise my patients that managing hay fever falls into two main parts. And I talk about this quite a lot in the book. So the first part is sort of limiting pollen exposure whenever possible. So there are lots of basic things you can do, just even having a shower when you come indoors. So you leave the garden outside. Um, wearing masks actually has been shown to be really good at reducing symptoms of hay fever so um you know we're all wearing masks a lot more than we than we used to that we're trying to i suppose demask and kind of move back towards normal life but if i've got hay fever i would definitely keep my um mask on because it's just a, it's just a physical barrier and then you've got the medications you've got antihistamine um salt water rinses which by themselves have been shown to be useful um nasal sprays can be really helpful then you've got eye drops combination nasal sprays and um, you can try to desensitize to pop people to pollen and i discuss all of these in, in detail in the book you know for some people you can just you know wear a mask take an antihistamine or even just take an antihistamine as and when and you're fine um, but for others they need to start controlling their symptoms really by ramping up the medication before the pollen season begins interesting well let's we'll come on and talk about the different types of antihistamines in a moment but i just wanted to ask you actually while I've, I've got you because anecdotally for me as a hay fever sufferer I found that taking a quercetin supplement has really helped me with with my hay fever I was advised I was actually talking to uh, I think it was a, a functional medicine doctor maybe this time last year on my podcast and they suggested quercetin and I you know as somebody who's lived on steroids and antihistamines during hay fever season I thought well you know that's not going to work for me but I have been taking it and lo and behold I haven't had any symptoms is there any evidence that you've seen that that would actually sort of clinically support that so quercetins, they're interesting. There's more than one, um, as you probably know, and they, and they belong to a group of plant pigments called flavonoids, and they give you know fruits and flowers and vegetables their colour. Um, and people are starting to look into it. So what there have been experiments done, but these experiments are mainly done in test tubes, and obviously a test tube is very different to a person. Um, and in and in the test tube, quercetin's been shown to reduce histamine release from immune cells. Um, there have been experiments also done in mice and in rats. Um, and those experiments again have shown that quercetin may have a um, anti-allergy effect. What you don't have is any data in humans. So ideally, what you would want would be to get two groups of people with hay fever, and they need to be matched, you know, for age and for sex and for severity of hay fever. And you want to give group A quercetin. You'd need to decide what would be the right amount of quercetin to give, which quercetin you would use, um, and give group B nothing or give group B antihistamines. And ideally, neither the patient nor the doctor or the scientist doing the trial would know who was getting what. 
And then you would compare it and you would look out for side effects and you would look out for doses. And then you would get, you know, kind of really strong evidence to say, hey, quercetin is great. If you eat more X, Y, and Z, you can get the same amount of quercetin as in a supplement or you need a supplement. And you would get really strong data. So I think the data is heading that way. The difficulty is to get something to the point where, you know, whether quercetin is occurring, you know, nature is powerful and, you know, tobacco comes from nature, alcohol comes from nature, quercetin comes from nature. So nature is really powerful and it's sounding to me like quercetin is really potent and certainly your experience is so positive. So before you get doctors like me recommending it, you want a bit more trial evidence in humans to show that it works with that safety data. And who knows, that may well come along. I mean, it's amazing that it's helped you. How great is that? Well, I, I have to say I, I was massively sceptical and, you know, I think unfortunately with a lot of the natural supplements and dietary aids, you know, a, a double blind clinical trial like you've described is extremely expensive um, and not really in a pharmaceutical industry's interest to do it because then people aren't going to start taking antihistamines. So, you know, I'm, I'd be very interested, actually, I, I, you know, if anybody else listening to this has had experience, do do drop me a line on, on social media and we can continue that discussion. But let's move on to talking about antihistamines in particular, because there seem to be so many now that are available. Do you do you think that some are better than others? What's what's the, the scoop on that? So... Antihistamines are like the first line treatment, aren't they, for hay fever and so many things. And we divide them, allergists will divide them into generations. So first generation antihistamines are the older antihistamines. And they're often classed as driving impairment medications because they cross into the brain. And as a result, they can make you drowsy. And even if they don't make you drowsy, in fact, they can impair your reaction time. So there was one US study which looked at the effect of these first generation antihistamines on drivers and they found that this slowed their reaction times more than being legally drunk so oh in goodness. the so in the uk so, so you're like give me the quercetin so in the uk the most widely used first generation antihistamine is 73 years old and um, it's called chlorpheniramine the brand is pyriton and it's outdated and it's got too many side effects you have to take it you know three times a day um long-term use has been associated with alzheimer's in children whoa. yeah whoa in chill in children um it sometimes parents will give it to them in the hope that they might knock them out for a flight but it can make them hyper um so in children it can make them hyper one of my colleagues was saying yeah we gave it to our son and he was jumping up and down in his cot for like two hours um so 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 i tell my patients to avoid the first generation antihistamines and then the other antihistamine i tell them um to avoid is one called acrivastine. You find that in certain brands of Benadryl. And that's simply because although it acts very fast, it doesn't last very long. So there are lots of second generation options that are available, cetirizine, loratadine, fexafenidine. Um, they can be taken once a day. They've got fewer side effects. You can buy them over the counter just because something's prescribed doesn't necessarily make it better. Um, and um, they all are really effective in um, managing hay fever. And different people report different things as to which one they um which one they prefer. Very, very interesting indeed. And, and it's interesting that they're being updated all the time as well. 
if the over-the-counter antihistamines aren't working, can we get even stronger ones prescribed then? So I would say with antihistamines, there's no such thing really as a stronger one. You know, different antihistamines will have different doses and it will refer to the amount of the drug you need to have the effect and the effect should be pretty similar. So I think that if you're finding the once daily, you know, cetirizine, loratadine, fexafenidine, it doesn't matter whether it's like, you know, a Tesco own brand or it's a branded one, the drug is the same. Um, If you find that the -the over-the-counter antihistamine is not working, I think it's usually a sign that you need to kind of step up the treatment ladder and think about other treatments to get your hay fever under control. Interesting. So moving on then, what would those be? How would you step that up? So the next stage would be a nasal spray, um, a nasal steroid spray. And nasal steroid sprays, they're a bit, you know, probably a little bit boring, a little bit unsexy, really, but I think they're absolutely great if you use them in the correct way for really knocking your hay fever on the head. And the key thing is using it in the correct way. So using it for long enough, putting the nozzle in the right direction, not sniffing. Oh God, if I could stop the UK sniffing, it was, it's like a, a reflex, you know, you put liquid in your nose, you want to sniff it. But when you sniff it, you know, you're eating your snot which is fine by me but you're eating your spray and the spray won't work because you've swallowed it so it again in the book you know I talk a lot about how to use a, a nasal spray and I remember once you know my cousin rang me up with terrible hay fever and I was like you know you need to get a nasal spray and I recommended one and then a few kind of I think about two weeks later he rang me back and you know he works for Ford he's got some high power job I don't understand it but he was just like oh I told everyone in the office you know my cousin is an allergy specialist and she said throw away your antihistamines and I'm like she did not say that um, <laughs> and, and and use a nasal spray and you know I've got them everyone's using it now and they're great um, and that wasn't quite the effect I wanted but if you get the inflammation in your nose under control it's often the key to helping your eyes So actually, a nasal spray will help your eyes. It will help your nose. It's the next thing to add on in addition to an antihistamine. But the problem is that people are not taught how to use it and when to use it. And if you're not given that information about how and when and you're not told not to sniff and you're not told the direction in which to insert the spray, you're not told to wash your nose out with a rinse beforehand because your nose is all snotty. So you need to get that all cleared out the medication's not going to work. It's like, I don't know, putting a moisturizer on through your clothing and standing in the shower. You know, it's not going to do the job. And that's what happens with people. So they end up getting really dispirited and feeling like, you know, the medication is not working for them. So those sort of nasal sprays, are are they the ones that you buy over the counter or are they the ones that are only available on prescription? So you've got ones that you can buy over the counter, but you've also got ones that are on prescription. And usually I recommend for my patients some of the prescription um, sprays, just because in my experience, they tend to have... um, a finer aerosol. So one of the problems with the nose spray is that the spray comes out and it drips out of your nose. So if you get a spray which has got a very fine aerosol, it's less likely to drip out and it's more likely to be effective. But, you know, over-the-counter is is good as well. You know, it's sometimes difficult to see your GP and you want something to try straight away. Um, You know, over-the-counter is fine. And, And the one thing to bear in mind is that antihistamines, they work very rapidly. You know, histamine is released as part of an allergic reaction. And an antihistamine will 
block the effects. I see the steroid sprays, and you can tell I'm a total allergy geek, but a bit like the sort of policeman in the nose. You know, there is an infl inflammation. There's a party going on with the pollen and all the cells. And, you know, the nasal steroid spray is a bit like, come on, we need to break the party up, guys. We need to break the party up, guys. And it takes a week or so, you know, to persuade all those cells that have gathered there to disperse. So I always tell my patients to at least give it a fortnight before saying it doesn't work. Interesting. What about saline sprays? I've when I've had irritations in in the eyes and nose, I've just bought a really simple. Um, it's just like a, a nozzle on a canister that contains purified yeah. saline, salt water, and I have to say it feels very nice. It's very soothing. It's very cooling. Is it is it doing any good? Is it doing any harm? Yeah, no, no harm at all. I think that they have a definite part to play with saline um, rinses. So in women who are pregnant, who often don't want to take any medication at all, they've found that regular saline douching or saline rinsing in itself reduces symptoms of hay fever. But in addition, if you're using a saline spray and you use it a few minutes before you use your um nasal steroid spray it's removing all that debris from the nose and it's allowing the um medication to reach um the um to, to reach to reach the sidewall of the nose because if it's covered um with you know mucus then the medication is going to be less effective so i think saline rinsing is really good you know it's kind of drug free for want of a better word and you've got different rinses available some of them have a really large volume so you have to get a bottle you get a sachet of like a salt water of salt you then take cooled water it's really important it's cooled from your kettle you put that in the bottle and it gives you the advantage that you can wash out your nose with a really large volume of liquid and then you can get other salt water sprays where they're ready made up and you just have the convenience there of something in a canister and you know I've used it as well and you try it in your nose and it's very pleasant and it cleans out your nose but the volume is not quite as large so possibly it doesn't do as good a job of cleaning out your nose and sinuses but either of those is great so I always tell my patients use a salt water rinse and then get on to using your your nasal spray. Mm, interesting really really good advice let's talk a little bit about immunotherapy because I'm hearing more about that can you explain what it is and and how it can be helpful for some yeah sure so with immunotherapy you know imagine you've got your treatment ladder for hay fever so your first stage will be to avoid pollen and antihistamines the next stage might be a steroid spray the next stage might be kind of other medications or different sprays and then the final rung tends to be immunotherapy and immunotherapy involves um, giving people a really potent extract of pollen so say you're allergic to grass pollen you will be getting about 2000 times more pollen than you would be exposed to during the pollen season and wow, it's I'm given sure to and it's and it's given to you either by an injection into the arm or it's a tablet under the tongue over three years. And this huge amount of pollen ends up reprogramming your immune system. So it sort of forgets about the allergy. And in patients who are struggling and where they're under the care of a specialist, so my nephew was like this. In fact, my nephew was thrilled this was his claim to fame to get into the book. He's like, Yay, I'll be famous. But you know, for him, none of 
the medication was really, you know, allowing him to get on top of symptoms and, you know, his parents were stressing out with exams and everything coming up. You know, he basically now has a grass pollen tablet under his tongue and it's reprogrammed his immune system. The disadvantage of this sort of treatment, so it's kind of, you know, kind of the final line of treatment really, is twofold. If you're having an injection into your arm, you have to have that, often it's done pre-seasonally, so for about eight weeks or so before the pollen season. So that's a commitment on the part of the patient. They have to go to the hospital. You can't get this injection at your GPs. And you have to be monitored for an hour or so afterwards because you're getting an injection of something that you're allergic to. And you need to make this commitment for a three-year period that before the start of the pollen season, you have these injections. Um, if you're having a tablet under your tongue, um, that's every day for three years you're taking a tablet. So every day uh, for three years. Yeah, every day Whoa. for three years. So this is why these tend to be, you know, they they are great treatment, but you don't say to somebody straight away, come along and let's start some immunotherapy. Um, you want to try the simpler sort of seasonal treatments first. And if it doesn't work in the right group of patients, people who are suffering, having a miserable time, you know, I've seen people who've had to, you know, work with tissues stuffed up their nose and all sorts. Um, for that sort of patient it's the right option but it's not the right fit for everybody i'm curious about that if I, if i was highly allergic to tree pollen and you gave me a large dose in a tablet to put under my tongue wouldn't i immediately get terrible symptoms so people will tend to get itching and sort of swell and, and and maybe a little bit of swelling at the site under their tongue but it doesn't tend to cause like life-threatening allergic reactions but that first tablet again if given under supervision, just to be sure. And I think it's to do with the root of exposure, you know, when you're breathing something in as opposed to under your tongue or whether it's injected. And that kind of large dose, you know, and generally when you're doing the injection immunotherapy, you build up the doses a little bit. With the tablet, you just start with the standard dose. Um, it doesn't tend to give people anaphylaxis. The, in, the injection immunotherapy, potentially it can do. Um, but again, it's quite rare. And what you need to do is you need to have you know kind of experts as it were deciding do you need that treatment giving you the first dose in a supervised setting and if it's injection immunotherapy you're not giving that to yourself at home like a diabetic would you're having that in a hospital setting so it's um it and, it, and it's transformative you know for those for that kind of small percentage of patients who are just getting nowhere with the medication it doesn't usually replace the medication but it acts as an adjunct and it just calms the immune system right down. And then along with the medication, you know, patients' lives are transformed. How would you find out what particular injection or tablet you needed? I've heard that there are these sort of skin scratch tests where they insert a little bit of different pollen substances to see which one reacts. Is 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 that how you detect which particular pollen that you might be sensitive to, or is there something a bit more sophisticated? It's not very sophisticated. Um, yeah, so so I mean, I mean, the basic way, if I'm really honest with you, is by which time of the year you're reacting. You know, you will have an idea roughly by that. You know. If you're sneezing and your eyes are itchy and your throat is scratchy in May and June and you're fine the rest of the year, you don't really need a skin prick test to confirm that you're allergic to grass pollen. Though obviously it's important if you're going to undergo immunotherapy or something like that. Um, otherwise, you can get either blood tests, which can be done by your GP, or skin prick tests, where basically you put drops of solution of what you think the person may be allergic to on their arm and you scratch the skin and you look for histamine release. So you look for like a little 
little itchy bump like an insect bite um, at the site of the arm where you've done the test. So you can always tell an allergy clinic because everyone sat there staring at their arm, waiting to see what will happen in the next 15 to 20 minutes. You know, you can, you can, you can always figure it out. The most important thing, if I'm honest with you, with allergy, yes, you've got the testing, but actually it's to do with the history. Um, you can have a positive test and not be allergic. You can have a negative test and possibly even be allergic. So where allergists in a way have their specialist skill is not so much in, in doing the test, but it's interpreting the test in the context of what the patient tells us. You know, if I've got somebody who's saying, I have really bad symptoms of hay fever in the summer and their skin tests to grass are negative. I'm going to start looking for other pollens. I'm going to start doing blood tests. I'm not going to just look at one skin test and say you're not allergic. Likewise, if I've got someone who's got a positive test to grass pollen, but they have no symptoms in the pollen season, I'm not going to say you have hay fever, but you don't realise. So it's interpreting the test that's so important. Fascinating stuff. Now, you've mentioned the word histamine a few times, and this is something that's actually as regular listeners to my podcast will know is close to my heart because my daughter who has an autoimmune issue is extremely sensitive to histamine and is on histamine blockers, which is not ideal because, as, as you know, histamine is you know, an important part of our immune system overall. But if you are somebody with an allergy or perhaps suffering during hay fever season especially, should you be considering something like a low histamine diet? Would that actually help control your symptoms? I would be saying that there's no evidence to support that because the problem is that when you're breathing in the pollen, the pollen is essentially stimulating cells in your immune system which already contain histamine to release it. So it's a bit like a key in a lock. You know, imagine that you've got a room and it's locked and, and it's locked. And within that lock is histamine. And behind that door is histamine. When the pollen comes in, it's like a key and it opens the door. And the door opens and the histamine comes flooding out. And the amount of histamine that you have in your diet is not going to really change that process. So I would be saying that if you've got hay fever, you've got enough to worry about and you don't need to struggle with a low histamine diet, which can be really difficult. Yeah. Oh, tell me about it. Absolutely. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So let's put hay fever aside for a moment, because you've outlined in the book that allergies in general are also on the increase. Why is that? Are we living just a more toxic life? Are are there so, so many environmental stresses around us now that are triggering more and more allergies? So... Gosh, how long do you want me to talk for? Um, the, you know, I, I, I mean, I think of it as as layers. Okay, so imagine like layers of a cake that are sort of piling up. So the first layer is to do with your genes. If you've got a parent with allergy, you have a thirty to fifty percent risk of developing an allergy. So both my nephew and niece, for example, they have hay fever, and their dad um, is allergic to is allergic to grass pollen. Now, if both your parents are allergic, that risk will increase to. 60 to 80 percent but it's more complicated than that because our genes are influenced by our environment so the next layer is very specific to hay fever and in fact i just tweeted about it this morning and it's to do with climate change so in the last 30 years um we have found that you know the pollen season has becoming longer and in fact a paper just came out in nature which was saying that by 2100 they expect the tree pollen season to start 40 days earlier and the grass pollen season to carry on for at least two weeks longer so i think the pollen season is a lot it's about two months so i think the pollen seasons are becoming longer and in addition due to pollution and carbon dioxide the concentration of the allergenic proteins within the pollen so pollen will have proteins that stimulate allergy is increasing so i used to find that patients would say you know i have a good hay fever year or a bad hay fever year but for many patients now they're just uniformly bad Um, and it's to do with this kind of increased duration of the pollen season and increasing concentrations of pollen so the third layer there there are five of them the third layer um, is is to do with the um, trillions of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live inside us. Um, And a great statistic, I think, is that we have 30 trillion cells, but we have 40 trillion bacteria, viruses, and fungi that call us their home. Um, And they, 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 you know, people describe it, so the medical word for that is the microbiota for all these bugs. And they make up about three pounds of our body weight. And they are um, the invisible body organ. And we're just starting to tease into the microbiota and what it does. And one part of it is the microbiota acts like a finishing school that educates our immune system how to fight an infection, how to recognize what is dangerous and what isn't. Now, what we're understanding, and we're just in the space of understanding it, we're just starting to understand it, is that if the interaction goes wrong, either due to the balance or type of bacteria, then we seem to become more susceptible to allergy. Okay, so a medical study, this was 2021, 
found that if you had a little baby and you cleaned their dummy using antiseptic in the first six months of life, they had an increased risk of food allergy compared to cleaning their dummy with water. And this was, yeah, and this was presumably because you had chemicals in the antiseptic that were disrupting the microbiota in the baby's mouth and gut. Taking lots of antibiotics when you're very young may have a similar effect. Being a second child may make you less likely to develop a allergy because, again, your microbiota may be influenced the house, just maybe that little bit more mucky and dirty. Growing up with a dog when you're very young seems to reduce your risk of some allergies. So we're just starting to tease into the microbiota and trying to understand about how can we manipulate it um, potentially to reduce our risk of um, allergy. People are talking about poo transplants, um, which is a whole um, new area. I don't want to be prescribing poo in the future, but who knows? Um, people who knows? Are, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, you know, what may, what, what may happen? But can you manipulate the people's microbiota or the microbiome, which is the sort of genetic material, um, in all those bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live within us to reduce allergies. So the third layer is to do with the microbiota and the bacteria that live within us. And it's a really exciting area. And I think that, you know, in the book, I say that, you know, if there's one chapter that I'll probably be rewriting, you know, if Penguin asks me to rewrite, um, it you know, in kind of five or 10 years time, it would be that because it's an area where a huge amount of work's being done. Um, and everyone's microbiota is sort of individual to them. Um, and the microbiota, to say if you live in I don't know Saudi Arabia versus I don't know Greenland it tends to be a little bit different in the composition so there's a lot that we need to understand but but that's the third part um the fourth part is actually to do with when and how um very young babies are exposed to foods so if you've got little ones you know little children little babies with eczema and they've got broken skin they tend to be exposed to food through the skin because there are trace amounts of food throughout our house. You know, you eat a peanut butter sandwich, you will find peanut dust in your bed, even if you wash your hands afterwards. Now, if you're exposed to food through your skin, it seems to increase the chance of you developing a food allergy. So there's a strong link between eczema in the first few weeks of life and developing a food allergy. But if children are fed those same foods, it seems to protect against food allergy. And there was an amazing study. You know, the UK does some amazing allergy research. And um, there was some amazing UK study where there was kind of initially, it was born from an observation, actually, that Ashkenazi Jewish children um, in the UK seem to have a very high rate of um, nut allergy, peanut allergy, but Ashkenazi Jewish children in Israel did not. And what they found was that the Israeli Jewish children, they were weaned using a snack called bamba, which contained peanut. And it was from there that people began to realise that actually, if you have um, a child who's at high risk of food allergy, if you expose them to um, certain foods quite early on, you know, when they're kind of four, five, six months, it seems to reduce their risk of allergy. So one reason for the potential increase was for a long time, the advice was actually avoid allergenic foods. You know, if you have a child who you think might be allergic, don't give it to them. Well, we now in the last few years have realised and the public health advice has changed. 
managed. You want to be, um, you know, in a, in a in a controlled way with kind of supervision, thinking about getting those foods into a child's diet early. Um, and then the final layer, so it's a long answer, I'm afraid. Um, the final uh, um, layer is to do with um, vitamin D or the sunshine vitamin. Um, because we, you know, we expose that on, expo we, we, manuf we manufacture it when we're exposed to sunlight. They, that may also impact on our microbiota. So might we be suffering more allergy because we're spending more time indoors and we are basically using sun cream and sun blocks and all of these things. And that may lead to low levels of vitamin D. So the evidence is not so strong for that. But that's another theory that's that's out there. That is all completely fascinating. So does that mean then that the I guess that the sort of health visitor advice for, for mums and, and for grandmas listening is for small children when you are starting to introduce foods that actually maybe a tiny bit of smooth peanut butter on, you know, mixed in with your you know rice or whatever it is that, that, that you're being offered as, as, as your first mouthful. Is that something that's now being recommended to help reduce allergies? So there's, I mean, you're moving on really, aren't you, to the area of kind of allergy prevention. And we now know that when it comes to, I say, food allergy, that eliminating foods from a baby's diet, particularly if they're a baby who are at risk. So a baby who's got a food allergy or has got eczema a few weeks kind of after birth um, is, not the right, is not the right thing to do. And research is showing that if you get those susceptible babies and you think about introducing kind of solid food from four to six months, if they're not already allergic so for example smooth peanut butter mixed with pureed food or pureed cooked egg this seems to train the immune system to accept the food once it's introduced and once you've bought that food in the diet you want to keep it in the diet consistently what i would recommend to your listeners is if you go to the british society of allergy and clinical immunology so that's BSACI, just type into Google BSACI, you will come up to the BSACI website and they have produced a free online weaning guide for parents which goes into more detail. So you go into the website and you just type in early feeding guidance and you will get information about how to um, introduce foods into your baby's diet depending on whether you think they're at high risk or not particularly high risk of allergy but the general rule is to get foods in early not to avoid foods and the last thing you want to be doing is to be avoiding lots and lots of foods because that may potentially increase the risk of your child um, developing an allergy that's so that's so fascinating and and so different you know I, I speak as a mum of five mine are much older now you know so I've, I've been through lots of different changes of, uh, of of advice from you know not washing with you know using you know baby oil or whatever and then you know then the advice now is to use only water and you know I mean it, it just changes you know sleeping on your back sleeping on your front you know these sort of public health yeah. messages uh, have changed so much over the 20, 20 year span of uh, age difference of, of my own children. So I think that's that's very, very interesting discussion and, that and we're having yeah. here. And the point about well, oil actually is really interesting as well, because, you know, another thing to prevent allergy, you know, it's really sort of in vogue, isn't it? You know, to massage your baby's skin with olive oil or natural oils. But actually, and I was really stunned to, to, to learn this from my from my pediatric colleague, um, that these natural oils can disrupt the skin barrier and may increase the likelihood of developing a food allergy. Um, so you want to be, you know, 
and and what sounds better than you know massaging your baby with olive oil it sounds great doesn't it but actually it may be bad for their skin and increase the risk of them developing um a um a food allergy so yeah and and i i think it's i think it's tricky and i think it shows actually the difficulty in trying to get clear, clear public health messages and the difficulty in trying to be completely sure what is the right thing to do you know it's, it's a difficult area is it possible then to have an allergy and not realize it what, what sort of symptoms might someone be experiencing if, if that was the case it's really unusual in my experience. So most people who have an allergy are very aware of it. So if you kind of break it down, if you are allergic to a food and, you know, the moment you put that food in your mouth, your tongue starts to itch, your lips start to swell, you get covered in hives, you find it difficult to breathe. You know, most of the time someone who's got a food allergy, they will know about it and they will say you know i was out i don't know in an indian restaurant and you know i ate i don't know a prawn curry and then very quickly this um, reaction happened um likewise you know if you're allergic to pollen or you're allergic to cats or you're allergic to dogs normally you know you you have contact um it's either the summer or you go near a cat or a dog you know if you're allergic to a cat for example people can walk into the room and know that a cat's been there even if the cat's not there anymore and you you know and and, and you and you and you and you know about it i mean cats are just sort of the allergen super spreader aren't they i mean i love the statistic that they kind of found cat allergen on the kind of it was a nasa spacecraft even though there'd be no cats there because the allergen is so sticky um they found cat allergen in antarctica even though there are no cats in antarctica um so normally if you're allergic to something that you're breathing in usually you know about it if you're allergic to a food usually you have an idea that there is a problem likewise if you are stung by a bee or a wasp you know people tend to um know Know about it they tend to have you know a severe allergic reaction people are aware of it um the one time when someone might be allergic and they might not be sure is if they're allergic to house dust mites so people can be allergic to dust mite and that can be triggering their asthma or it may be giving them sort of year-round symptoms of a cold and that may be a little bit less obvious but usually if I see a patient and they're telling me I'm struggling to find out what I'm allergic to um as a specialist, my first thought comes in that you're probably not allergic. And that's why you're struggling to make the link. Usually allergies, you know, that they, they, they rise to the surface and they're pretty obvious. So then what is the difference between an allergy and an intolerance? Because might that person be presenting with an intolerance? Absolutely. You've, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, like, so food intolerances are more common than allergy and they refer to a reaction that doesn't involve the immune system. So the problem tends to be digestion. So for example, I'm um, intolerant to the milk sugar lactose and that's a very common intolerance. And I know that, you know, I shouldn't have too many lattes in a day because it will, you know, make me uncomfortable. Um, when you've got an intolerance, so such as a lactose intolerance, you don't have enough of the enzyme lactase to break it down in your gut. So as a result, if you drink, you know, too much cow's milk or you eat foods high in lactose, you can't digest that sugar and you can get an upset stomach or diarrhea or bloating. And if you're lactose intolerant or, you know, you're intolerant to another food, often you can have some, just not too much. 
But if you're allergic, even the tiniest, tiniest amount can um, set you off. And the most extreme example I think about is um, of the boy Karen Chima, who passed away, unfortunately, because someone flung some cheese at him at school. And that is the most unusual example, because normally contact with a food would not cause that sort of severe reaction. So if you're allergic, particularly to, to milk, just the tiniest quantity can cause a really severe allergic reaction. And it's a really difficult allergy for, you know, families to, to manage. But if you're intolerant, you're talking about a non-immune reaction and it can be pretty unpleasant. It's not nice if, you know, you're going out and you think, I can't eat this and I can't eat that. But it's not got that same element of danger. So one issue is that people have an intolerance and they're not sure if they're intolerant or allergic. And then the other thing that um, causes a lot of confusion for people is people can get hives and hives can be, you know, like a nettle rash that can be part of an allergic reaction. But sometimes hives can just be hives and they're nothing to do with allergy at all. And, you know, again, it's pretty disconcerting if you're sat there and suddenly you start coming up in welts and your lips start puffing up. Your natural reaction is going to be, what is it that I'm allergic to? And often you're not allergic to anything at all. It's just the cells in your skin that contain histamine are becoming a bit hyperactive. So a big part of my job as an allergist is not just to diagnose allergy, but it's also to remove the label of allergy so that people don't end up avoiding things or doing things um, and really impacting on their lifestyle when they're not allergic at all. So if we think we might be allergic, what's the best thing to do? Are there any foolproof tests, for example, that we can do at home? Um, so I think it depends on what you think you might be allergic to. So if you think you might be allergic to a drug, for example, so you think you might be allergic to penicillin, you know, you start by going to probably to your family doctor, they'll take a history, work out is it a side effect or is it an allergy and whether avoiding that drug such as penicillin is doing you harm. And if that's the case, you know, they refer you to a specialist. If you think you're allergic to a food, um, hopefully you will avoid that food. I do get the odd patient who thinks they might experiment and try it several times and react. But I think that if you think that you've got a food allergy, so you know, you're getting that kind of itching, burning in your mouth, your lips are swelling, it's hard to breathe. I would be saying do not try that food um, at home as an experiment to see how you get on. It's, it's very brave, but it, you know, it, it can potentially be dangerous. Talk to your doctor and get referred to a specialist for testing. Um, I think that's really important. When it comes to um, inhalant allergens, so when it's things like, you know, pollens or cats or dogs, quite often you can work it out by yourself. You know, I don't think you need your GP or a specialist to always do that for you. If you're well outside of the pollen season or you're well away from a cat or a dog or a horse, you don't need testing. You know, it's pretty obvious that you've got a problem um, with that animal or with that pollen. And um, you can then start to think about what you can do to kind of treat symptoms as and when they occur. So it really depends. But I think if you think you have a food allergy, you need to talk to your family doctor. If you think you have a drug allergy, again, it depends to what extent it's impacting you. You know, if you think you're allergic to local anaesthetic, for example, that's potentially quite serious because it means that you'd need to have a general anaesthetic or avoid local anaesthetic if you went to your dentist. That needs to be sorted out. If you think you're allergic to a general anaesthetic, really important that gets sorted out because otherwise it impacts you if you need to have surgery. Um, so it depends a little bit on what the what the allergen is. 
Mm. Interesting, some of the new developments that are happening. I remember I wrote in my magazine, actually, I was sent a press release from a pet food manufacturer and they had identified that some people who are allergic or sensitive to cat hair, it wasn't actually the hair itself. It was the protein that was being dis- deposited by the cat spit when they were yeah. grooming themselves. Yeah. And that by they, they were making this cat food that contained something that blocked the protein yes. Yes. In, in the cat lick, which meant that when they were licking themselves, the, the protein wasn't deposited, which meant that more people were able to enjoy their cats without risk of allergy. And I, I mean, I thought that was just a completely fascinating way of, of tackling a, a, a very common problem. It's it's amazing. So yeah, cats, you know, people are allergic to um, the saliva. Um, there's a protein in the saliva called FEL-D1. And that's um, the protein which we, against which they've developed this food. So it reduces the amount of FEL-D1 that's um, secreted by the cat. People are allergic to the dander, so the skin. Um, and they're also allergic to proteins in the urine. So there are lots of ways of tackling the problem. And this is where I feel that allergy is in quite an exciting space. And, you know, in time, you know, low allergen cat food may be one of the ways of tackling the problem. And it's completely fascinating because it turns the problem on the head and it sort of gets rid of the major allergenic protein in, in, in the cat, which is which is fantastic. And I think looking at food, you know, for us as humans, I hear from so many people, you can imagine working in the world of well-being, that people are self-diagnosing allergies and intolerances I have a number of people who say to me oh I'm dairy free I'm gluten free I'm lactose free I'm casein free you know whatever it is I was interested that you touched on the world of the microbiome earlier because I wrote a book about gut health a few years ago and in that there was a very simple just six-week plan of how to try and repopulate your your gut microbiome and get more of the, yeah. the beneficial bacteria uh, and, and and fewer of the bad guys. And many people who did that found that where they previously thought they might have been lactose intolerant, I wouldn't say allergic, but intolerant or gluten intolerant, because they fix their gut, they can actually fix their allergic reaction. Do you think that's something that we need to be looking at a little bit more rather than just saying, oh, well, I'm allergic. I just need to have, you know, all these free from foods, which tend to be so much more expensive. I know. Isn't it amazing? Removing something ups the price of it so much, doesn't it? Um, I, I, I think that the microbiome is kind of where it's at. And I think that, you know, manipulating our microbiota is really, is potentially really exciting. Um, and it may well be a way of relieving some of the kind of intolerances and difficulties that people have, you know, when they get kind of irritable bowel type symptoms. So I think that it's a really exciting space. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a space where we've got all the answers as yet. So I think we're just kind of beginning to understand about the microbiota. We're beginning to just understand about how to manipulate it. And also, I think there needs to be a sort of awareness that I say, you know, the British microbiota might well be different to the French or different to it. So it, it may not be a kind of one size um, fits all. But I think in the next few years, actually, the um, our understanding of how to manipulate it to relieve symptoms of certainly intolerance and possibly also to prevent us or reduce the risk of us developing allergy. Um, it, it's a whole area that's really going to expand. Mm, great. Well, we'll have to come back and have another conversation about that. But while I've got you and, and before we go, I really would just like to touch on something that I know fills people with fear, myself included, um, and that's anaphylaxis. And, and having somebody 
with me who might go into an anaphylactic shock. How could we spot the symptoms of that if, if we were with somebody in that situation? And I guess more importantly, what could we do to help? So it's a really um, good question. So I think the first thing is if you know that you're going out with somebody who's got a um, food allergy in particular, you know, ask them what are the kind of symptoms and signs that they have experienced when they've reacted before. Often when people are allergic, they will get something called an oral warning. In other words, they put the food in their mouth and the moment they put it in their mouth, they realise that they have eaten something that they're allergic to because they get that tingling, they get that itching and they know. Where the situation ends up being kind of more dangerous, as it were, is if, for example, the food allergen is disguised and you don't realise that you have eaten it. So you end up eating quite a large amount. Say you have, I don't know, nuts in a curry or something and the spice sort of disguises it. So you end up eating quite a large amount of that allergen. And the symptoms to look out for, so skin signs, people can get hives, they may swell, they may get flushed and usually these reactions will occur within a few minutes of eating the um, food that you're allergic to up to an hour later but usually it's quite rapid you can end up getting difficulty breathing so you, you know you're wheezing or your throat gets tight and when someone gets a really severe reaction they may become pale or clammy as their blood pressure drops and they may feel lightheaded or faint so the first thing is if you're going out with somebody who you know has a food allergy just ask them a bit about what happens and also ask them where they keep their adrenaline pen if you are with somebody and you think they're having an anaphylactic reaction, so with the word anaphylactic, the word adrenaline goes hand in hand. Adrenaline is the A-list drug. And the first thing that you want to do before you call for help, before you sue the restaurant, you want to find the person's adrenaline pen and without delay, inject it or help them to inject it. And if they've been seen by a specialist, they will usually have a treatment plan with their pen. So if you're thinking anaphylaxis, and even if you're saying to yourself, should I give them adrenaline? It's usually a sign that you need to give them adrenaline. So anaphylaxis, it can be dramatic. You know, it could be that, you know, your throat closes up and you go all pale. But equally, there's a spectrum. It could be that you get some hives and you just start coughing and you start clearing your throat. That's also anaphylaxis. So there's a spectrum. So the first thing is thinking anaphylaxis, think adrenaline. Speed is of the essence. Don't delay giving it and make a note of the time that you've given it. And if their symptoms aren't improving after about five minutes, then a second dose can be given. Next thing to do, and again, so this is before calling an ambulance, is make sure that the person stays still. So you don't want them to be walking around. You don't want them to be pacing around. You don't want them to be running around. Um, exertion can make an allergic reaction worse. And we also know that standing upright is a feature of life-threatening allergic reactions. So make sure that the person is not standing. If you imagine yourself like a column, and if you're standing upright, the blood or the water is literally all at the bottom if you've got low blood pressure. So if you've got someone who's feeling dizzy and faint and you lie them flat, imagine a column with a little bit of water and you tip it down, that water or the blood is going to be going to the head and the heart. So if someone's feeling dizzy or faint, you want to lie them flat. If they're finding it hard to breathe, then they may be more comfortable sat upright, but the position is really important and you don't want to go sit to stand or lie to sit really fast. You want to do it very 
very, very gradual. Um, and in those very rare cases, and you know, to be honest with you, it is pretty hard to um, die from a food allergy. The difficulty comes that nobody can predict who is at risk of that life-threatening reaction. This is the problem. Food is part of our day-to-day -day life. It's social. We enjoy eating. And it's incredibly stressful for um, patients and, you know, their families to have to go out to keep checking, you know, does a food contain an allergen or not? And there's all, and, you know, there can be this risk hanging over people to actually when you look at kind of fatal reactions there thank god they're extremely rare but when you look at reactions where people have died it's often this sudden moving from lying to flat to sitting up or from sitting to standing that have been associated with those fatal reactions so the posture is really really important um i don't want to scare people who are listening with food allergies but you know posture is it's it's so important so once you've got the person in the right posture they've had their adrenaline the next stage will be to call in ambulance. If you're in the UK, you know, don't call 111 first, go straight to 999. Explain that the patients had anaphylaxis, that you've administered adrenaline. If that person is deteriorating while you're waiting for an ambulance, call back check the ambulance on its way. If you're in a restaurant, you know, or a hard to find location, then send someone to direct the ambulance. And the other thing that's really important if you're with someone and you think they're having an allergic reaction is, you know, our natural reaction, or at least mine is when I feel unwell, is to go to the toilet to check, you know, am I okay? You know, might I have a rash? Might there be a problem? You don't want that person to go alone to the bathroom. So make sure that someone is with them. So in case that they get unwell, someone is there to administer the treatment to keep an eye out for what's happening. So those are the main things, really, you know, get the adrenaline early, make sure the person's in the right posture, that they're staying still. If they've got signs of low blood pressure, lie them flat. If they're finding it hard to breathe, keep them sat upright. Changes in posture need to be very, very gradual call an ambulance. And if by the time the ambulance arrived, the person feels better, that's great. It means the adrenaline's done the job. You've not, you know, wasted anyone's time. You're not wasted a resource. You know, in the UK, we're so conscious of like, people will say, you know, I didn't want to, the NHS is stressed. I didn't want to put a pressure on the NHS. Absolutely not. It's the right thing to call the ambulance. And even if the person is better, by the time the ambulance has been called, they need to go to hospital for a period of observation because very, very rarely, there can be a rebound allergic reaction. Mm. How fascinating. I, I knew very little of that. And, and so thank you for sharing it. Just out of interest, is there just one type of adrenaline? Is it generic? And if I had an EpiPen in my bag, say, for example, if I was, you know, just thinking, well, I'm going to be hanging out with lots of kids. I've got house guests coming over the summer. Is it a useful thing to have? Do these do these things have shelf lives? Is it something that should potentially be part of a, a travel kit just generally, even for those who aren't anaphylactic? So as a as a rule, um, there are different sorts of adrenaline pens and um, the availability of those varies from country to country and location to location. What you should be having is that Anybody who has got a diagnosed food allergy, they need to keep their adrenaline pens with them. That's really important. The number of people who like, like, you know, come into my clinic and they say, oh, I always have my adrenaline with me. And I'll be like, 
do you have it with me now to show you? And they're like, oh no, it's in my bedroom drawer. So it's really, it's, 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 it's really important. It's not going to help you, is it, if it's in your bedroom drawer? So it's really important to um, keep your adrenaline pen with you. And then I would say that if you're having people coming over who may have, you know, food allergies, etc., you know, parents, people talk to each other, explain to the host, you know, what to do in case a child has a reaction so that they have the confidence and make sure that they bring their anaphylaxis kit with them. You know, there's a, there's a whole debate about, you know, adrenaline pens and whether they should be widely available in restaurants or whether they should be available, you know, in other places. I think there's a move now, you know, in schools at least, that it used to be that every child used to need to needed to have their own pen but now actually they just have a kind of generic supply for the school so those are sort of broader issues but if you are hosting somebody with a food allergy I would say have a chat to them beforehand because I think it puts your mind at rest and it puts actually the family's mind at rest as well very interesting as I say fantastic advice thank you for sharing so much your book is absolutely fascinating it's it's a really brilliant read I hope it does super well and uh, let's see what happens in the world of immunology and I hope that we can catch up with more research over time to come but uh, for now Sophie thank you so much for being with us thank you for having me it's a pleasure to um, join you and yeah I hope that but you know it reaches out to people and it helps people because you know so many of us are suffering and perhaps we don't need to be suffering quite as much so if we can just reduce that a bit that would be my goal achieved indeed I share that thank you and Dr Sophie Fruick's book Understanding Allergy is out now, published by Penguin. And as I mentioned earlier, the food supplement that I found to be so helpful is called Quercetin. It's widely available. I buy mine from a British company called Biocare, who generously give us all a 15% discount with the affiliate code Liz Loves. That's the usual, Liz Loves in capitals, all one word, over on their website. And that is Biocare. .co.uk. And I should add, they also have an excellent team of qualified nutritionists able to help and advise on all sorts of matters, should you want to get in touch with them. Well, speaking of getting in touch, many thanks to all of those who've contacted my wellbeing team and me recently over on our social media channels or via email. A couple of quick highlights to share with you here. Uh, this is from Jude, who writes to say, Hi Liz, I've been meaning to drop you a line for a while to say thank you for what started with listening to one of your informative and wonderful podcasts, to devouring your entire Spotify podcast list. I would stay sitting in the car to finish or offer to drive or walk the dog as often as possible. I started listening last year when my 20-year-old daughter had ME and your interviews really helped give me hope and prompted me to research more and stay positive. I continue to listen to you on your different platforms when I can keep up with you. And as a 52-year-old personal trainer and wellness coach, you've also encouraged and inspired me to go out and educate myself even more so I can continue helping women be the best version of themselves through perimenopause and beyond. And then you go on and say lots of lovely things, which I'm far too embarrassed to read out. Uh, but you finish by saying, a week doesn't go by without me learning something new. Thank you so much. And that's from Jude. Well, Jude, if you're listening... 
Hey Jude, excuse the pun, thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. It's really heartwarming to hear that and well done you continuing to educate others. We have to share, don't we? Pass the baton on when we receive it. Um, Another listener here from the other side of the world says, Hi Liz, I just want to say thank you for sharing your very informative video about your personal experience about menopause on YouTube. This video inspired me to start my HRT finally which had been sitting in my drawer since October 2021. I wish I'd started sooner as my anxiety is less and I'm sleeping so much better. I was that person who read the leaflet inside the box and was put off reading about the side effects so back in the drawer they would go. Yeah, I do know that one, Deborah. You literally have to be very careful with those leaflets. We know that a lot of the information in there is just plain wrong. And you can find out more, of course, by taking a look at some of my videos on that on YouTube. Anyway, you go on to say, I've shared your video and inspiring podcast with all my menopausal friends here in New Zealand. Keep up the great work. And that's from Deborah. Thank you very much indeed, Deborah. And a big hi to you all down under listening. It's lovely to connect with so many globally. So thank you very much indeed for all your kind feedback. It truly does help keep my team and me ploughing on with our wellbeing research and as always providing evidence-based information, especially when it comes to better healthcare and wellness outcomes for midlife women and beyond. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.